HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here at Heritage Radio Network. And today we are sponsored by Dixon's Farm Stand Meats at the Chelsea Market in New York City. Dixon's Farm Stand is a purveyor of a unique selection of artisanal meat and meat products. Our beef, lamb, pork, goat, and poultry are sourced from local farms, hand-picked because of their commitment to producing natural, humanely raised, high-quality, and distinctive meat products. Dixon's offers grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, heritage, breed, and more traditional meat products, always feedlot-free and raised without added hormones or the use of antibiotics or animal byproducts. Today on A Taste of the Past, um, I thought I'd start out with a little quiz question. What food provides one-fifth of the calories consumed by humans worldwide? Think about it, and I'm sure you'll all come up with the answer. And our guest today is well prepared to talk about it. Our guest today is Renee Martin. Renee is a food writer, a culinary educator, and a food historian, as well as a former chef. And she is prepared to talk about the subject of, Renee, rice. <laughs> Renee has been doing a lot of research lately because she has she's just about to um, publish a book on a global history of rice. Renee, welcome. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate the opportunity to be here to uh, talk about rice. Well, I mean, rice is such a huge topic. It, how, I mean, how can you how is. can you pare it down to write uh, a book um, you know, and, and get anywhere with it? Well, this is a brief, it's a culinary history with limitations on in terms of, you know, how much detail one can go into. But there are some very interesting facts. Uh, let me just give you a couple of statistics, and then we'll talk about uh, American rice, which is what I wanted to talk about today. Great. But, of course, ninety between 90 and 95% of rice is grown in Asia, and primarily in Asia today, it is processed, harvested, processed, and eaten within 10 miles of harvest. That's the majority of rice on the planet. 
Yeah. And well, of course, all you need to stop and think and say, "Duh, right?" <laughs> right, right. We do we do know all that, but when we think about it, because the American rice industry has such an unusual and interesting history of its own, and yet the percentage that it represents in the world market is really very small, growing to be sure, but very small. And um, I would say that uh, in terms of uh, you know the the rice as an industry started in. British colonies of South Carolina, and then shortly after that, Georgia, strictly as a commercial business. That was the original impetus to get it going. And after a certain amount of trial and error, there was a sort of perfect storm of events that led to this explosive growth in the commerce of rice, which was exported back to Britain, which charged uh, duties and mm-hmm. made a lot of money on it before it was allowed to go be delivered to different parts of Europe. Did we, have, did we then have to buy it back from them in those, those uh, early days before we gained our independence? No, we, we kept a little. <laughs> uh, we didn't tell anybody, but we, we had our own little machinations. But um, So the, uh, there is this story, which uh, seems to be true, that uh, rice arrived in South Carolina in 1693, when a ship uh, was stranded off the coast, and while it was being repaired, the grateful captain gave um, you know a seed, a bunch of a seed rice to a, a physician who happened to also be a botanist, and he was really interested in seeing if rice would grow. And this is Madagascar rice, uh, and it grew very well. Hmm. Now, one of the interesting things that uh, I've learned in my research, peop- the rice that's eaten today worldwide is Asian the Asian-derived rice, the mm-hmm. Asian rice and African rice. and But the rice that was brought to the colonies was actually African rice, and it grew very well. The problem lay in the milling of it. There was a high percentage of broken grains, and that's one of the primary reasons Asian rice supplanted it eventually. But we tend to think that Asian rice was sort of there from the beginning, and, uh-huh. it, and it wasn't. And, um, of course, slavery was the... Well, I was going to say, being African rice, that that brings with it a very interesting story as yes, well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Can you um, did you did you include much of that in your research? I mean, oh. I know a lot has been written about uh, about the African connection and rice. Right, right. There is uh, first of all, rice was provided uh, as one of the staples on the slave ships as they were coming across to the colonies, as well as many other foods which we now associate with southern. Southern cooking, um, yams, okra, um, sorghum, millet, right. and sesame mm-hmm. all come from Africa, and they're all associated with uh, various kinds of um, Southern cooking and Southern cuisine. Um, another thing that that kind of contributed to the rapid success of rice was, so first there was the importation of slaves, and I use the word importation on purpose because that's how they were thought of horrible as it is, but that's that was the word. Um, and enough slaves were brought in annually. Um, the numbers increased, and by the time slavery was made illegal, the importation of slaves, which was before the Civil War, long before, there were enough slaves in place to sort of continue uh, building up the population on their own. That was So that was one thing. Now, South Carolina rice plantations were many of them were owned 
by loyalists to the British crown who were given huge grant land grants in South Carolina, and they were already sugarcane planters mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, That's right. and they already had slaves. So they had the whole system set up already. There was no learning to do it. They just switched um, from sugar to rice, and of course the slaves who came were the most desirable ones, were people who came from the uh, what became known as the Rice Coast. African countries. So it was then, so Carolina rice is primarily African rice. It, was, it was. was, yeah. It was. I mean, Carolina, it was, I mean, it was called Carolina gold, right? Because well, that was, was for the color of the grain as it sort of, you know, weaved in the wind. Mm. It was this beautiful golden color. But it was milled, and it was milled to be white rice. And it was, Just, I mean, it was claimed to be some of the finest long grain rice. Right. Oh, it won awards in Europe. It was in the first cookbooks that started to be used uh, that were. Before any were published in the U.S., British cookbooks were in high demand by the mistresses of the plantation households who would read recipes to their black cooks who, of course, couldn't read or write Mm -hmm. and were expected to produce this European uh, or British-type food. But because they were, um, of course, the, the slaves, mostly female, who worked in the house had better access to food and ingredients. Um, And as a result... Of their influence, they were a lot of the slaves in South Carolina uh, were given plots of land on which they were expected to grow their own vegetables. Mm-hmm. And this is a little controversial. Some people think it's because the plantation owners couldn't be bothered feeding them, except for basic things like sugar and salt, which they'd get once a month, or or grits or something. Uh, but but as a result, regardless of what the motivation was, they planted a lot of the vegetables and produce and fruits with which we're familiar now. The ones you had mentioned earlier, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that was not in the colonialists' diets, and the, the colonists' diets. The other thing that contributed sort of to the development of uh, Southern cuisine was the task system, which meant that each slave had a specific task to do every day. And when they were finished, they were free to do as they pleased, mm-hmm. which often meant that if they had a surplus of production, they could try to sell it. Sometimes back to the plantation owner. but So there was a, uh, I wouldn't call it, a, a, there was a more relaxed form of um, community. Uh, also, many of the plantation owners left for the summer because these tidal waterways were swampy and full of uh, mosquitoes. Mm. And yes, the mortality rate, uh, the malaria, the rates of malaria with the slaves was very high also, but they couldn't go anywhere, and the owners could, so they were more, more on their own, able to develop a community. And cultivate the, the crops. And, and I think that contributed to um, the development of of the cuisine. And all of this continued until uh, the Civil War. But I just want to give you a couple of statistics on the commercial aspect of how much rice left. Um, the U.S.? Yes, yeah. the colonies. The colonies, This right. was before the Revolution. In 1698, which I believe, uh, well, that's the first number I have, 10,000 pounds were exported. Hmm. One year later, 131,000. Uh, Ten years later, one and a half million. Wow. 1726, 43 million, and by 1789, 80 million. So we are talking a serious Leaps profit, and bounds, not profit. even exponential. I mean, we're talking right. huge growth. Profit-making yeah. potential was enormous. And, you know, 
there were many obstacles, and the British imposed all sorts of duties, but uh, I'll save that for another day. We, we want to <laughs> get back to uh, what happened to Rice after the Civil War. Well, and after the yes, but, but even prior to that, when you were talking about the recipes, I mean, we, there's such a richness of wonderful rice dishes and rice recipes that um, we were fortunate to uh, to get from I mean slavery slavery was an unfortunate event but um, our our culinary background is so much the richer absolutely and um, I know you and I were talking earlier about Karen Hess's um, mm-hmm. publication from ninety two called the Carolina Rice Kitchen the African Connection and um, she did she as well as she could uh, a replica of some of the cookbooks that were written or a cookbook that's the right famous there was that's that Sarah one Rutledge one. I think Sarah Rutledge's yeah. cookbook right right that was um, written and probably dictated you know wonderful yeah. recipes yes wonderful. wonderful recipes I get I guess when I think about rice and the world at large I think of basic rice combinations that are found in in large numbers throughout families and households. So the typical, if you have to pick one, the typical one for South Carolina would be Hop and John. Hop and John, right. Um, but I mean, and how there are many others. You know, what's interesting too is that if you know, if you know biochemistry, chemistry, I mean, you know that you have to have those legumes, not beans, we call them rice and beans, but it's, they're pea beans, they're, they're legumes. Right. That completes the, the... Pulses, I think. Pulses, right. Yeah. Um, and that completes that essential amino mm-hmm. acid cycle that, that creates protein, mm-hmm. um, especially if the rice is polished rice, if it's, you know, if it's cleaned rice. Right. Well, that, that brings up a couple of interesting things. Recently, I read, but I cannot quote where I read this at the moment, but it's in my notes somewhere, that you don't actually have to eat rice and pulses or beans or black-eyed peas together to get the benefit of a complete protein, you can have them separately during a time period. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be at the same meal. Now, I don't know if that's really uh, the case, but I did read about it in a science journal somewhere, so... But But, that's the theory. But what what an interesting natural combination that that evolved somewhere they knew. Absolutely. (laughs) And then as we move to to uh, Louisiana, we get red beans and rice. Um, of course, there's many other things. Dirty rice, which has right. nothing to do with protein. <laughs> uh, well, that's not really true, actually. Um, but in any event, so that that just is a sample of uh, the enormous commercial impact and on the culinary culture of South Carolina, as well as the profit-making uh, abilities of the rice business as a, and duties and various other problems with the British contributed greatly to uh, one of the causes of the revolution. And then, of course, slavery and the Civil War had a huge toll on the rice plantations. M- many of the plantation owners wanted to defend the South, and they weren't there to supervise the slaves. Many slaves left. The population in the northern U.S. had now overtaken the southern U.S., and many slaves came north and went to other cities where there are huge uh, African American populations and did that, today. Did that put a, a dent in the southern rice? Oh, it decimated um, it. Yeah, it, did, it, did. it decimated it. Well, and it's such a it's a one of those food commodities that we kind of take for granted. But it's interesting that such a such a big business. We'll talk about post Civil War and bring us up to some modern things that are happening with rice when we come back. Okay. 
Hey, we're back on A Taste of the Past with Renee Martin. We're talking about rice. Rice. I mean, rice is everywhere. I, you know, does a week go by that, that you know, in our American diet, in American culture, that you don't consume a meal with rice? I mean, you always have rice. Rice is a great thing. You know, it's like, it's our, it's our starch, right? <laughs> it is, but uh, one must keep in mind that the average consumption in the U.S. today is about 25 pounds per person per year, which is nothing compared mm. to the potatoes 500 pounds in um you know indonesia yeah well or the asian the asian the, cultures right, right or even 200 pounds right yeah. exactly well after this you said you were saying a lot of changes in the in the industry occurred um after the civil war well this was another example of where several different threads came together to allow the rice industry to flourish in Louisiana, and then now you have to remember Louisiana was not the state we know it today. It was five times as big and went all the way north. It covered Louisiana a huge purchase, amount, right? <laughs> yeah, huge amount of territory. Um, so several things happened. The first of all, the Cajuns, because we're familiar with Cajun um, food, though. So those were um, French settlers in Acadia in Canada who were kicked out by the British and moved all the way down the coast. They spread themselves over the Atlantic coast, but mostly landed in the uh, swampier areas of Louisiana, Mm -hmm. where they became renowned for their hunting and fishing and rice growing and rice cooking. And um, gumbo is an excellent example of... uh, And gumbo, of course, is an African word and um, includes okra. Okra, of course, is an African vegetable. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just one example. Now, while all this was happening, um, the railroads were brought in to southwestern Louisiana, and as a result of that, uh, as well as development and milling, milling machinery improvements, the ability to produce rice on a much larger scale and transport it kind of revived. Um, then, of course, we have the Creole influence uh, in New Orleans proper, which Creole is a very complicated word. Mm-hmm. Um, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. So suffice it to say for right now that if you are of French, Spanish, African, Amerindian, or other heritage that fits into those words, <laughs> you could be We'll just Creole. lump you into Creole, right? But the, the mixing of culinary cultures is often called Creolization, hmm. and that's a word that's used by uh, historians. Jessica Harris uses it, and it, it does sort of encompass uh, all the different, you know, threads that go into the making of... Um, of the rice dishes that are based on all these different ethnic groups and the cuisines that come from there. But going back to what I said about Carolina, if there's one dish that you're going to take to be representative of Louisiana food, including Cajuns and Creoles, it would be red beans and rice, Mm -hmm. which, so they say, was what you made on Mondays, which was laundry day, and... While you were while you were working while you, you could were cook working, all day long. <laughs> that's right, and you made everything else. And uh, but of course, and it would last all week. <laughs> um, could be if you could uh, refrigerate maybe it properly. Pot, right? Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. But the other the other uh, interesting thing is the development of um, the rice. Rice does not have to be grown in a tidal 
a tidewater well, area. Like a wild rice right. that needs to be in a in right. It doesn't. Swamp. It grows very well that way, but it can also be grown on a prairie that gets regular irrigation the hmm. way wheat does. And so uh, several entrepreneurs decided that it would be a good idea to open up these vast expanses, the prairies uh, just north of the Louisiana that we know of today. If they could bring wheat farmers down from Nebraska and uh, some of the other states and bring them, get them interested in growing rice as, a, as an industry. Hmm. And they recruited very heavily, and they brought farmers down and showed them how they could grow rice with similar machinery to wheat growing, not identical, but adaptable. And uh, they came in droves and turned what was described by a government inspector around 1870 or so as completely useless land into one of the most fertile agricultural areas in the world. Not, not And still true today, not mm-hmm. not so much with rice, although Texas and Arkansas uh, are still so major yeah. rice producers in the U.S. Texas, yeah. So as a result, we have these Midwestern folks coming down who have different backgrounds. And um, when I think about rice in the Midwest, I think casseroles. And, <laughs> and I was browsing around this morning looking for for some dishes, and I did find uh, a couple, sauerkraut and rice casserole is one that I found, which I don't know that I would call it representative, Mm, but certainly it's out there. And really, if you think of Julia Child and Subiz, which is onions and rice, you sort of see there's a beginning of a a few little tentacled connections here. And um, let me just see what I have here. So between steam-powered milling machinery, the railroads... The new farmers from the northern, the, yeah. midwestern, northern states, all this conspired to produce a, a major rice industry, and of course Louisiana stayed, you know, as it as it still is now. Well, and then it, um, the industry. Well, you say the industry got big, and we know of a couple bastardizations of the rice industry as well. We won't talk too much about minute rice, but <laughs> actually, I, I mean, people people considered rice a difficult grain to cook. That's true. They did. And that was, uh, by the time this is, I'm glad you brought that up. It reminded me of something I wanted to mention. Once the rice, the during Reconstruction is when the rice business took off in Louisiana and then the Midwestern farmers came down north and set up rice on the prairies. There was a surplus of rice for they got rid of what they could commercially, but they wanted to increase American consumption, which was about four pounds a year at that time. Ooh. Tiny. And uh, so the... Um, and you South- say today it's about 25. Yeah. That's still not great. Huh? No, it isn't. Um, so the South... I think it was the Southwest Rice Association or perhaps the American Rice Association. These rice traders who in- operated independently got together and said, what can we do to promote Americans eating rice? And they decided to issue some pamphlets um, and with recipes because one of the problems with rice, one reason it wasn't so popular is that people overcooked it and it was mush. Mm-hmm. And they had to be told uh, what to do about that. So one of the things I've discovered, and this sort of brings us to Uncle Ben's, is uh, I found a pamphlet that was published by the American Rice Association. It came out about 1910. And it's called Creole Mammy's Rice Recipes. 
And this sort of tells you what they thought people needed to hear in order to become interested. It's still the African influence, which of course is still true today. We still have Uncle Ben's today in Spanish on the box. Hmm. Uncle Ben's arroz, (laughs) which is quite astonishing, really. Um, Now, Uncle Ben's, in fact, um, came quite a bit later. well, again, but, but Carolina and the Carolina Rice Company was it was around prior to that too, and Uncle Ben that was I mean that was big business. We're talking rice had become big business packaging and branding had of you know had become more Americanized and well and absolutely. So now we have the development of um, supermarkets and the returning workforce. Another reason that consumption of rice was encouraged and did increase was after World War One, believe it or not, because wheat was being used for the army. Right. Not only that, rice was used in military rations as well. Hmm. So when the soldiers came back, they had sort of gotten used to rice, and the population had gotten used to rice because there wasn't enough wheat to make bread. So those things all contributed to rice consumption. Now, puffed rice was invented in 1902, and you might recognize the uh, slogan, shot from a cannon, right. <laughs> which was used to sell it. And subsequently, it was uh, became part of Quaker Oats, I believe. Um, that's right. Yeah, Quaker Oats, yes. And Rice Krispies, which mm-hmm. is puffed rice, also came out in 1928. And that's Kellogg. Uh, Uncle Ben's didn't come out until the 40s, the 1940s, oh. it's, which is sort of surprising. And I think that's because of what's on the cover. Um because we think it goes back a long time, but it doesn't. And what made Uncle Ben's interesting is that um, there was a method of steaming, pressure steaming the rice before the bran was removed, which pushed the nutrients into the center of the rice. So then once the bran was removed, it was actually far more nutritious. And, of course, that's not, that's converted rice. Right. Well, I mean, because there is that, that whole dichotomy between... Um, nutrition, uh, brown rice versus white rice. And mm-hmm. Which one is more nutritious? And uh, and that is that is an interesting debate. I mean, I used to think brown rice absolutely, but in fact, that is not necessarily true for a couple of reasons that have nothing to do with nutrition. You have to give people food they will eat, mm-hmm. and since brown rice takes t- twice as long to cook as white rice. If you can get white rice that, let's say, and I'm making this up here, but let's say it has 80% of the nutrition as as brown rice does, that's probably good enough to save half the time cooking it to get dinner ready for your family or something like that. And it's just, as you said, it's so much more palatable. Um, You know, looks nicer on the plate. People tend to... People prefer worldwide. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Which brings us to uh, a little bit, I wanted to say a couple of words about sort of this return to artisanal rices, organic rices, and what's going on today. Uh, I mean, the movement is tiny. Uh, There is some debate, uh, not so much in the U.S. In the U.S., we think of organic foods as not only having the food be good for you, but because it replenishes. It's the earth we're concerned with. Mm -hmm. The soil, the runoff, the toxic, uh, you know, the, the water down river, and so on and so forth. So it's a combination of the food product itself as well as what's happening to the land uh yields in some areas yields are as good as they are with conventionally grown agriculture this is apparently not true with rice based on 
what I've read on. There's Asian, uh, the uh, Rice Research Institute in Manila, which, of course, is not focused on U.S. rice, right. but they have a lot of interesting information. And uh, I don't know. They seem to think that organic rice is, is not necessarily viable because the yields are so much lower. But this could be because they're using a different... You know, variety of variety rice. Variety of rice, right. As right. I know, I mean, the rice industry moves, you know, moved, spread out. It moved over to California. A lot, okay. of, a lot of yes. production in California. Right. right. Well, the, the rice industry didn't really get going till the 1920s. Um, and there's some very interesting um, information there about, which has to do with Chinese laborers coming over for the gold rush. Um, and rice was imported for them and... They went into other industries, as we know, restaurants, laundries, and various other things. But then the Chinese, but they were very good at it. They came in record numbers, and they they were willing to work for much less than others. And as a result, this huge wave of resentment took over, mm. and a Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. I think I think I'd have to look it up, but I think it was 1882. Yeah. And so a lot of Chinese who wanted to come to the West Coast actually went to Hawaii. Some. And where they grew rice, among many other things, of hmm. course. And so there's an interesting segue there and almost a delay in what could have been a, a, an earlier rice industry. But it did start up again around Sacramento uh, in the 1920s. And, of course, there are a lot of organic growers well, there. And they, well, and they, well, organic as they claim, but sustainable. They're, they are concerned about uh, sustainability and, and, and the land. That's right. And, Texas also has yeah. a certain percentage of uh, rice growers who are promoting how how they take care of the land at the same time as provide a product that's healthier for you. Well, and I didn't realize that there was this interesting kind of symbiotic relationship between waterfowl and rice growers. And the mm-hmm. water, waterfowl will nest on the, on the down periods when the rice isn't growing, much like when they plant them, when the farmers plant their cover crops and they keep it moist, and the waterfowl break down the straw that they planted to... That's Over right. Over the crops, right? That's right. Interesting. And, and interesting. they also provide protein to go with the rice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. A lot of eggs get laid in those patties over the, over the winter. All right. Um, so what do you have any figures on where we are today in terms of how, how, how much Asian rice we import and how much do you – rice? We, I don't know if you've even gone there and touched that. I haven't gotten to that. That yeah. I will be able to because you know you that. go to the market today. Okay, I will send you out on a task. But I'll, find I'll that tell out. you something that I am going to look into. Then I was in a supermarket in Long Island, uh, browsing, looking. I look at rice now everywhere yeah. I go, and I saw a bag of rice that had a very nice picture of an elephant on it. And I thought, well, okay, so let's have a look. So it's Tilda, which is a huge British company. Mm-hmm. The rice comes from Thailand. It's processed by which I mean milled and then gotten ready for packaging in England. It's packaged there, and it's shipped to the U.S., and I find it in a supermarket in Long Island. So it's made almost a worldwide tour. And this is beautiful. like soy sauce. Um, We grow the soybeans, sell them to Japan, buy back the soy sauce. Right, right. (laughs) right. And, of course, this is long-grain rice. We didn't talk at all about the different rices, but that's another time. But, but uh, that's the interesting. That's why I wondered if you, you know, that, and you will do your research. But if you knew, because you, as you mentioned, you go in the supermarket. There's, there the varieties used to be. You go in, you bought rice. Now you walk in. You had a choice between minute rice, <laughs> which was that's right, you know, or Carolina rehydrate, rice, or Carolina rice, or 
Or wild rice, which is not well, really rice. Well, we didn't even talk about that. Wild rice. But, so now you walk in and there's jasmine, basmati. There's, oh, there, there's, oh. And there's jasmine from Asia. There's jasmine from Texas called jasmati. Uh, there's every Asian, long grain Asian rice that has uh, any sort of status, basmati, jasmine. Right. There are many. You know, short grain rices, the Italian rices. I mean, it's wonderful. It's just, it's a, it's a, um, a whole array it's of It's a smorgasbord foods, yeah. of rices. Yes, it takes up three or four long shelves. It's, it's astonishing. <laughs> right. I know. And wild, we we will just mention that wild rice, while not being truly a rice, I mean, it is a grass, and as rice is right. a grass. Right, But it's not truly, it's more it's of a... It's not really rice. It's a grain. In fact, wild rice and corn were the only two original uh, uh, cereal grains that were indigenous to North America. Mm-hmm. And that I found out in preparation for our talk today okay. <laughs> I'm doing my homework right well renee this is I, I can't wait for the book to come out because i it's their rice is such a much bigger topic than most people realize and that's yes, why that's i included true. that quiz question about providing one-fifth of the calories consumed by humans worldwide i know I mean, it's, it's amazing. astonishing yeah it is it's yeah, huge it is well thank you so much and, and we'll look forward to seeing your book Glo- the global history of rice coming out within the next year hopefully Hopefully, yes. (laughs) All right, well, I'll let you get back to work then. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on A Taste of the Past. I would like to thank our sponsors once again, Dixon's Farm Stand Meats, and our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. Please join us again on Heritage Radio Network. 